This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Natalie Goldberg. Natalie is a writer and teacher and a painter. She has studied Zen Buddhism for nearly four decades and is ordained in the Order of Interbeing with Thich Nhat Hanh. Her books include Old Friend from Far Away on How to Write Memoir, Long Quiet Highway, Thunder and Lightning, The Great Failure, and Writing Down the Bones book based on the methods from her writing workshops. Writing Down the Bones is available as a Sounds True audio learning program. As well, many of Natalie's books are available as books on tape, where she reads the entire book on audio. She's also created an audio program with Julia Cameron, available through Sounds True, called The Writing Life. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Natalie and I spoke about writing as a spiritual practice, what it means to meet your mind in writing practice, and Natalie's recent experience of beginning to stand in the role of being a Zen teacher. Here's my conversation with Natalie Goldberg. Natalie, I'd love to begin by talking about writing practice which is something now that you've been teaching for, what, over three decades? Yeah, 35 years. So writing practice, the idea that I sit down with paper and a pencil or pen, and I set a timer, I decide that I'm going to practice writing for X amount of time, and then I don't stop. I just write, 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 write. So here's what I'd love to know. 35 years later, how has your experience of this practice changed and evolved? That's an interesting question because, you know, when you hear somebody's been doing something for 35 years and something that is so simple and basic, um, you think, God, don't you get bored with it? Isn't it a drag? Are you just doing it because you have to? And it's all I can say is it's very um, essential. You know, I've, I've grown and changed. I've written other books, but I always come back to this simple practice. It's sort of like, Tammy, you drink a glass of water. You can't drink a glass of water and then quit. It's, water is essential to you. Writing practice is essential to me keeping my mind shapely and also to keep it honest, and to see what I'm really seeing, thinking, and feeling. And it's also the basis of all my writing. It's my foundation. So I actually never grow tired of it. I don't memorize the rules. You think, oh, what a dummy. I mean, after all these years, you should know them by heart. But they're alive for me, sort of like a lover or a relationship. You know that person well after 35 years, but they're still alive for you if the relationship is good. There's no, um, you can't second-guess things. There's always a surprise. And so it's very fresh for me, and I continue to adore teaching it. 
And when I remember another rule, you know, maybe an hour into the teaching, I'll go, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you this one. And I guess I've been very lucky in that way. Either that or I'm really dumb. (laughs) Well, I am curious about this idea that you haven't memorized the rules. I guess I didn't realize that there were very many rules involved in writing practice. How how many rules are there? The one, the one that holds true, the only one you have to remember is keep your hand moving because that is a chance to separate out the creator and the editor. And often we mix them up and freeze because the editors at our shoulder telling us to stop writing. Oh, that's not nice. Oh, you didn't put a period in. Oh, your mother will be mad at that. And pretty much you're frozen, and you don't ever get to touch your genuine mind, what I call your wild mind. But when you keep your hand moving, there's a chance for something real to come out. And when I say keep your hand moving, I mean your hand, physically handwriting, your hand connected to your arm, to your shoulder, to your heart. Now, of course, you know, I know now people use computers. You can do a computer, too, but you should never forget how to handwrite. Just like if you have a car, you can't forget to walk. You have to still know how to walk. You know, with the current economy, you might not have any electricity. You can't afford it, or you you have to hock your computer. You should always know how to write, because that, I, I promise, you can always at least get paper and pen. Now, the essential rule is to keep your hand moving. So let's say you pick a topic that you're going to write on for X amount of time. Let's say I'm going to write about my mother or something, X amount, and I just run out of things to say, but I have to keep my hand moving. Do I just write blah, blah, blah until another word comes into through my hand, or uh, what do you I do? That. You know, the other thing is you can trust yourself. You can trust that the mind is always whipping up new thoughts. So if you relax, and, you know, you've run out of things about your mother, that might be when things might really start happening. So just, you know, write um, mother, 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 or, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah is a little deadening. I'd go mother, mother, mother. And then maybe something real underneath might come up. You might start talking about an onion, and that onion will lead you to a place and an angle you never thought about your mother. So, you know, you're working with the human mind. The human mind can't be controlled, and it can't, it's not chronological. That's why I can't teach writing A, B, C, and voila, you're a writer. So, yeah, just keep going and have a confidence that there's a richness in you. And I hear someone saying right now, yeah, there's no richness in me, maybe in you, Natalie. No, I promise you, it's the makeup of every human being. Once you step out of discursive thinking and trying to control things, there's a wealth underneath. And I realized, Tammy, I didn't finish the question earlier. There are some other rules that support keep your hand moving. One of them is, Lose control. Say what you really want to say, not what you think you should say. Feel free to write the worst junk in America. 
You need a lot of space in order to write. And, you know, you can't expect your first word to be the beginning of war and peace, which many of us do, and then we quit. So those are two rules. I can't remember any others right now. They'll come up maybe as we talk. Well, you've made an important point, which is that writing practice helps you get below your discursive mind. And you also mentioned that it helps you keep your mind shapely. I think you used those exact words. Can you tell me more about that? I mean, first of all, my concern would be, what if writing practice is just, you know, the outflowing of my discursive mind? What's so valuable about that? How's that going to keep my mind? You'll get bored right away. Yeah. You'll get, you know, um, you'll get bored of your complaints. You'll stop writing. It's built in because it's not alive. Discursive thinking, yada, yada, yada. Oh, I don't know what I should do today. Oh, I'm in a bad mood. Should I have a piece of chicken or, I don't know, you know, and it just goes on that way for hours and years. But when you physically try to put it down in paper, after a while it gets really boring. And so what I say, catch yourself, cut it off, put dash. What I really want to say is, and drop to that deeper level, and then things will be alive. That's why I keep writing That's why people I know keep writing. Writing is the act of discovery, not the act of my complaining the same things over and over. Mm -hmm. So what you mean by keeping your mind shapely has something to do with discovery? Uh, Shapely means that I'm connected to it, that it hasn't run away from me. Uh, For instance, that I have you know, some terrible nightmares this week and that I ignore them, that I have a fight with a good friend and I ignore it, that I, um, you know, that that I'm, I'm completely broke. I found out I have no money in my bank and I ignore it and I sit down and try to write about the pretty rose in front of me. To keep the mind shapely is to accept all dynamics of your human mind and your human life. So keeping my mind shapely, I'm going to write a book now um, about one topic, but it'll get leaky and kind of smelly if I don't take care of the rest of my life with the writing practice and include it in writing practice. So when I aim for the book, it doesn't pour out in the book and, you know, get off. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Now, I saw on your website that you're teaching workshops where you combine writing practice with sitting meditation practice and also walking. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how this retreat format came into being and what you think the relationship is between these three practices, writing, walking, and sitting. Well, you know, it's sort of as though I'm just coming out. I have slowly, um, you know, shown what backed up writing practice. And really, it's 2,000 years of watching the mind. It's not a creative little idea that Natalie had. And now, probably in about a year, you won't be able to study with me unless we're also doing sitting and writing, sitting and walking. Because writing for me is a completely legitimate Zen practice. And I've sat many, many, many retreats. 
And now the the thing that I have added to the retreats, all re- meditation retreats, often they do sitting and walking. I've added writing. Not writing as a nice little activity to feel good. I actually make it, you sit, the bell rings, you pick up your pen and notebook, you write. You put your pen down, you read aloud. You put your notebook away, you do walking. So I've made it integral into the practice of of meditation. And um, I think people who read my work have really been asking for that. You know, otherwise they can go get an MFA from a university. What I teach is a priori writing, the trust in your own mind and a connection with yourself and with all beings because we're not separate. Now, that's an interesting phrase, a priori writing. Yeah, that's a, a phrase. I like it. It's Latin, I think, and it means before. You learn to write. You get it as a practice before you decide to write an essay or a novel or a memoir or a newspaper article or a Ph.D. dissertation. It's about building your spine and a confidence in your own experience, a trust in yourself, and an understanding of how the human mind works. Now, 35 years of writing practice yourself and teaching writing practice, I'm curious if you could let us know where you have seen people get stuck with writing practice or your own experience of getting stuck with writing practice and what then dislodges it. Um, well, people, you know, believe their monkey mind or their critic that says, this will go no place, this is a waste of time. You know, we apply it to anything we really want in life. So people who come to study with me want writing. So they apply it to writing. Um, you know, this is stupid, you have a family, why are you doing this? No one will like it, you might reveal things that aren't right. And yet I tell my students, you traveled all the way here to be with me. Don't believe that little voice. Something in you wants it bad because it's a long trip to get here. And, um, you know, that voice, you know, we keep working with it. And sometimes the voice gets so loud, I tell people, okay, 10 minutes, let monkey mind out. Just let it rip. And let's study what it has to say. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, we follow that critic in us as though it were God. I hate you, you're stupid, and we believe it all. And really, it's just a dot in the huge sky. Now, you made this very strong statement that writing is a legitimate, I think, did you say Zen practice? A legitimate spiritual practice. And... I'm curious, is it possible that anything could be a legitimate practice? I mean, I've heard people say, my relationship is my practice. Could we take this further and say, you know, gardening is my legitimate Zen practice? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, but you know what? I think the meditation element is important, just facing your mind with nothing. And when you're gardening, you have an activity, And you can get very, um, what's the word, very worked up 
and, you know, want to really achieve something. I have to have the best flowers, the best roses. And you can do that with writing practice. I'm going to make a great novel. That's why I separate writing practice from writing a novel. Writing practice is just meeting your mind over and over. But there's something wonderful about adding the element of just facing the mind with no activity at all. And I think both of those together make it a really strong practice. You know, just like a relationship. When they, I, I always get nervous when people say, my relationship is my practice. My relationship could drive me crazy. And I need another backdrop, you know, another foot to stand on someplace else. If my relationship is my relationship and my practice, I can get really lost. I need another practice like sitting or writing, maybe gardening, to balance out that relationship. Because, you know, once you get involved with someone else, things get wild. Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm driving at is to understand from your perspective what qualifies anything, whether it's gardening or whatever, or writing as a legitimate practice. You know, because people could write and it wouldn't be a spiritual practice as we've you know, alluded to here. So what makes yeah. anything a legitimate spiritual practice? That's a really good question. And actually, I had students that studied with me for a year, and I realized they didn't understand what practice is. Practice is simply something that you do, and you commit yourself to it, and you do it regularly, first of all, whether you want to or not, and also with no gaining idea. I'm not going to get better. I'm, you know, because people come to meditation practice with the idea, I'm going to become really peaceful. You know, whereas it's not always true. You start sitting and all the wild animals come up inside you. So it's something without a gaining idea, but to look at whatever comes up and to continue under all circumstances making a commitment. So, you, you know, maybe you just say something simple like, I'm going to write for 20 minutes five times a week. You know, put down when, where, and show up, whether you want to or not. You know, there's no uh, yes or no. It's just there, just like brushing your teeth in the morning. You don't think, oh, I had a beautiful toothbrushing today. You know, it becomes beyond our criticism. You just show up. And then let's say I make a commitment like that, five times a week, 20 minutes. The content that I write about, do I just spill out, tell the truth, whatever's in my mind? Do I pick topics? What about that? Oh, you know, it can develop. At the beginning, maybe you decide, I just want to hear what my mind thinks. You know, I want to just have a relationship. And then, you know, I think I'll do for three weeks. I mean, when you commit to it as a practice... How luxurious. You could think, oh, for three weeks I'm going to do just I remember. And every time I sit down I begin with I remember. And after three weeks you can, you know, I'm an old camp counselor. You want to keep your practice alive. And if you show up and just do 20 minutes and it's dead, then do something. Cut into it. Go write in a cafe. And instead of writing um, everything you think and feel, 
write about what you see in front of you. You know, uh, practice that. Uh, practice the young uh, writing, describing the young man in front of you eating potato chips. So you can you have to keep it alive. It doesn't have to be hot all the time, but it ha- you know, but you know I know people who practice for years meditation practice writing and it's not alive. They just show up. It's not enough just to show up. You got to put your whole mind and heart on the line. Mm-hmm. Now you said you're an old camp counselor. You said that because you have to find aliveness if you're a camp counselor to keep the campers engaged and entertained? Is that what you mean? I make up activities, you uh-huh. know, like I remember. Okay, Nat, um, your writing has been pretty dull. I want you to walk to the cafe, do slow walking, and then as soon as you hit the the uh, cafe, open your notebook and go. You know, I'll just do different, phys- even physical things, like slow walking to the cafe and see if that changes things. So I adjust things. Um, that's what I mean by a camp counselor. You know, I can think of activities. Okay. Now, I'm curious. In 35 years, have you ever just said, you know, I'm tired of this, I'm going to give it a break, I'm not going to do any writing practice until I feel like I want to, and then before you knew it, six months had passed or something like that? Um, yeah, not six months, though. Six months is too long. I, I would go a little crazy before that. Um, yeah, sometimes I think, I always think it, Tammy. <laughs> I always, there's always a, a voice in me that says, oh, please, can't we think of something else to do, Natalie? And, you know, once in a while I listen to her and say, okay, let's try something new. And, um, you know, like hiking or painting. And then what happens is it doesn't meet my mind in the same way. When I'm writing, it, there's no split in me. The whole of me is there. And I get lonesome for that, you know. Sure, I think, you know, this is what you're going to do your whole life, just right. Yes, so. You know, there's a, um, when Colette was 86 years old, she, I think it was 86 or 82, you know, the French writer. Yeah. She um, couldn't go skiing anymore, and her husband and some friends were going to go skiing at a resort, and she made the excuse rather than say, you know, her body didn't feel good because her husband was 15 years younger. Instead, she said, you know, I just have something to write, and um, I'll, I'll just not go skiing today. And she realized when she faced the page, she realized that writing only leads to more writing, which is kind of wonderful. You know, it doesn't, that's it. That's it. You know, you pick something and that's it. But, you know, don't don't think I don't think... Oh, maybe I could become a race car driver or something. <laughs> Can't you do something exciting, Natalie? Mm-hmm. But this is my life. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, I love it. You know, I, I've interviewed you before, Natalie, and always enjoy our conversation. And there's one thing I remember very clearly that you said, and I'd love to talk more about it, which is we were talking about writing practice and the relationship between writing practice and published works, and actually creating a book. And you said, if you do enough writing practice, 
the natural structure of your next book will emerge from your writing practice. And that always stuck with me. And I'm curious if you could comment on that, if that continues to be your experience and if that continues to be what you see in your students. Uh, Yeah, it does seem to be, for me, um, you'd have to speak to my students. I think it's true for them. We've never actually discussed this. Certainly they don't seem, you know, I have a bunch of students writing memoirs and stuff, and they don't seem to have problems because I've trained them about what structure is about. But for me, yes, um, the, the organic structure for the next book comes out of what I need to say and, and how I'm writing about it. For instance, I can't say why this book that I'm starting now the chapters are going to be longer, maybe because I'm an old girl now and I have more to say in each chapter. And I want to make sure to get into every corner of whatever I bring up. You know, maybe it's because I've gotten older and I'm more thorough, and it's coincident with the structure of being 63 and practicing for 35 years. I'm I'm just now of one of my students who does a lot of political work and flies back and forth to the Philippines. She realized she wrote on the plane ride, the entire plane ride, and this went on for about eight years, and she realized only in looking back that she had been really writing a novel about the Philippines during those plane rides. So sometimes you don't realize your structure because it's so organic Till you look back. Does this make sense? Yeah, it does. I'm curious about the book you're starting to work on now, if you can tell us more about it. Well, it's, it's, it's so um, apropos, it's called Sit, Walk, Write, The True Secret. I've been teaching for the last 10 years, silent retreats, leading them with that title. And um, I think it was a year ago in the silent retreat, I thought, you know, nobody else is doing this. And you need to record it. You need to get this out. You know, as you get older, there's an urgency. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that. What is the urgency? Well, you're not going to be around forever. Even, You know, writing down the bones came out when I was in my 30s. So it just seemed like I would go on forever. For instance, I teach a sit-walk-write every August and every December for students who have studied with me before. And I realize they think it's an institution. But, you know, I'm not an institution, and someday I'm going to die. I'm not going to be around forever. But I'm curious, is the urgency some sense of wanting... Uh, your ideas to be immortalized, just wanting to express yourself for a sense of fulfillment? What really is it? love, Tammy. It's love. I love this work, and I love my students, and I want to share it because I see that it's helped. Well, that is a very beautiful answer. Oh, thank you. It's the truth. Now, the idea for Sit, Walk, Write, came to you during a meditation retreat. Yeah, when we were driving to the Rio Grande, the August retreat, we're silent for a week, 
And at the last day, we go swimming in silence in the Rio Grande and um, driving through the gorge. It was so beautiful. And people were just glowing and deep in themselves. And also, there were a few students. I, You know, students return over and over. There were several who couldn't swim before and took swimming lessons during the year so that when we went this time to the Rio Grande, they could go in. And you could feel their anticipation and nervousness. And it seemed like they even had new bathing suits. And it was just, it was so beautiful. I wanted to share it. Hmm. And could you see in your writing practice journals the seeds of the new book, the organic structure of the new book? Was it there? Oh, um, you know, I don't always reread my new books. It's in my body. It's in my being. Now, when I'm going to write the book, I am going to go through some of my old notebooks because I'll probably have some good things there that I can pick out of it. Mm-hmm. But it, it's more in my body. You know, like when I wrote the proposal, my outline is, you know, they asked for a pro- outline. My outline is just a list. Like one of the things on the list was ants fighting under the chair and at Plum Village or so-and-so diving in the water. You know, and then I'll use that as the topic, remember, and then go, and then just keep writing. It's all in me. You just, when you write, it comes out of you. You know, we think we don't remember things, but you'd be amazed what comes up when you write. Mm -hmm. It's a chance to live your life twice. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a question about that, that idea of living your life twice. On the one hand, you can remember and go back and live your life twice, but what about just living it right now, present, forward? Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to go live that thing twice when I could live a lot of new things once. Well, you know, there's a Yiddish word. Haza. Haza means pig. You know, (laughs) a lot of us, and we keep wanting to do too many things. You know, how wonderful to be present with your life right now, and to feel its richness. And, you know, when you write, you only find your memories in the present moment. So the more you're present now, the more your past comes up and enriches you or horrifies you. And, you know, we don't have to constantly be running ahead of ourselves to get new activities. I tell my students, you could stop now and have enough to write about forever. Probably you could stop at 12 and have enough to write about. Mm-hmm. Well, that's f- funny that you brought up uh, the Yiddish word, haza, pig. You mean that the, the person who's always seeking the next experience, the next experience. Yeah, the next hit, yeah. Like you described, you said, well, yeah. why not just go on? I could be in the present and then go on to plenty more new things. Why taste something over again because yeah. usually we never taste it once and if we were really tasting things we wouldn't be running ahead of ourselves so much mm-hmm. now you mentioned kind of in passing that in working with your students you've taught them the basics of structure the structure that it takes to write a published book so that they may not have this same question about how 
the structure for a book would emerge from writing practice. And, and I'm curious, what are those basics that you teach your students about structure? Okay. So, in the sit, walk, write, it's the structure of the zendo. They have them all lined up, you know, sitting against the wall. The structure of the bell rings. They switch into another activity. The structure when we're doing walking, I tell them not to cut corners. You know, often they end up curving around the corners. Do not cut corners. Stay fully. Follow the structure of the room, the structure of the day that's been set up, the structure that if you signed up to um, do the sweeping on the porch, when it's your time, just do it. Don't think about it. Don't think, well, the porch looks pretty clean. I don't need to do it. If it's your time, you do it. So the structure that I teach, oh, and then there's, of course, the built-in structure of writing practice. Pen, paper, the human mind, go 10 minutes. Just like the structure of meditation, the bell rings, you sit for 10 minutes, 20, a half hour, 40 minutes. And whatever comes up, you don't get tossed away. You sit with it. These are all structures, fundamental structures, that if they're in your body, when it's time to find a structure for a book, you'll be a, it, it's natural. It, you know, it's coming out of a whole life of structure. We all have structures. We brush our teeth in the morning. I seem to be bringing up our teeth a lot lately. But we, you know, brush our hair. These are unconscious structures. We can tune into them. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to someone who, I mean, I can hear this answer, but I can still imagine the listener who says, I have so much inside of me, but I don't know what the structure of this book I I feel called to write is. It's in my body, but how do I access it? I still don't know what it is. Okay, well, what are you called to write? First of all, I tell people that they have to do writing practice, practice for two years before they try to do something, you know, do a book or anything, because they need to have a relationship with their mind. Find out what your real obsessions are, what, where your real energy is, where it will, you know, because you have to carry a book for a long time. It can't be just, oh, you know, you walk down the street and you saw a couple arguing and thinking, oh, I'll write about that for a book. It, you know, it won't work. It has to come integrally from inside you. So once they have that, then I'd say, okay, well, what is this thing that you have inside you? Start making a list of the things you have inside you that you want to write about. So you make that list. And then each time you sit down to write, grab one of the things off your list, put it on the top of the page as a topic, and go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I'm giving you a structure right now and explaining that as a way to enter your mind and enter the book you think you want to write. I even hesitate to say book, the project you want to do, because we always run ahead of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you have this project ahead of you. When In the act of doing it, things will evolve. But I've given you the beginning structure of how to enter it. I promise if 
you do this, one thing will lead to another. Now, Natalie, I know you've been teaching people uh, about how to write memoir specifically and have written a book on that and created an audio program with Sounds True called Old Friend from Far Away on how to write memoir. And, you know, I, I know that a lot of people want to write their own memoir as a process of self-learning, self-discovery, and as you said, living your life twice. And I'm curious, what do you think makes a memoir something that someone else wants to read, not just something I've enjoyed writing and, and how I've learned a lot about myself? And is that even a worthwhile consideration? Well, yeah, it's worthwhile if you want to publish it. If you want to just enjoy writing a memoir, you should just write a memoir. If you want to uh, publish it, there's something, another element that has to happen. And I'm thinking now what it could be. For instance, okay, I spent two years writing a memoir about me and my mother. The problem with that memoir was I needed a third thing. My mother and I staring at each other, we never got along, was not enough to carry it. It needed another dimension. But I was so obsessed with my mother and me and needed so badly to get that down that I didn't care. I just wrote it how I wanted to write it and how I experienced the relationship. Now, it was deep satisfaction for me. I feel like it really helped my life. Actually, more than some books I wrote where I put in the third thing. But now, if I want to make it something to publish, I have to find some other understanding or dimension about it, about who was my mother outside of Natalie Goldberg. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's very interesting. Tell me what a third thing might be or how in other books of yours that were of a you know, memoir style, what was the third thing? Maybe give an example. Okay, well, I'm playing now. I went to Auschwitz on a meditation retreat for five days in June. It was horrific, and I wanted to go. Horrific because it was unbearable, you know. Um, so that would be an element I might put in because my mother, I think, carried the unconscious fear of her immigrant family. And when I was born in 1948, that's when the news came out about what was happening in the camps. And as a Jew, it was, you know, terrifying. But my family had no way of metabolizing, talking about, doing anything with it. And so it just went straight away into the unconscious. And I think my mother carried it for our family. That's a whole new dimension a third thing thrown in between my mother and I that could really open up the book in a new way. You see what I mean? I do. So the idea is that the reader is only so interested in any one person's sort of inner experiences unless there's something more universal that is being looked at. Is that kind of what you're saying in, in a different way of saying uh, Yeah, it? but sometimes... You can write a magnificent book. I'm thinking more, almost you could pull it off more with a novel, 
with just two characters would be beautiful. But because it's a memoir, me and my mother, there was a limit. You know, we there was a limit to us. There, I didn't have other dimensions to it. Mm-hmm. Now, did you feel terribly disappointed here? You spent all this time working on this, and even though it was satisfying personally that, you know, you had to look at it, even after all of the books you've published, I spent all this time, and wow, I don't think this thing I've been working on is particularly publishable. Well, um, no. <laughs> I actually sent it out. I sent it out. It was My agent sent it to about, I don't know, 15 publishers. Uh, two editors wanted it, and the publishers were horrified because I didn't have a good relationship with my mother, and they said it's just too dark. And um, But, you know, the thing I loved, Tammy, was everyone said it was beautifully written. So I was very happy. And um, I got the final rejection on a Friday, and on Monday I wrote the proposal for this new book. And I knew that I would just sit with the other book. Uh, you know, life is long, and I hopefully will figure out something eventually. But I know I won't get it by beating myself up. Mm-hmm. I'll get it by opening, relaxing, and holding it. And, you know, just kind of mulling it over while I do this new book. Mm-hmm. That's why I say students should study with me, because this is an area I'm clear. I'm just not so caught. Now, if you ask about relationships, you shouldn't come study with me. I'll make you crazy. <laughs> Okay, very good. Point well taken. You know, I have a slightly different topic I'd like to talk to you about, and it has to do with your relationship with Kadagiri Roshi as your Zen teacher. And Uh the thing I'm curious about, though, is here now, do you consider yourself a spiritual teacher in a similar or different way than Kadagiri Roshi was with you? Oh, that's a very good question. You know, I um, only recently am willing to see myself as a spiritual teacher, and I don't like the word spiritual because it's too general. So a Zen teacher, you know, a Zen writing teacher, um, and only because I'm realizing my students who've studied with me for a long time, you know, they've said to me recently, point blank, you know, you're not just our writing teacher. So I had to really admit that. But, um, yes, Katagiri, I've studied with other wonderful teachers, but he was my seminal teacher. He's really the core of my life, my spirit, if you call it my spiritual life or my Zen life. And I feel like I am passing on his teachings, but through Natalie Goldberg, who happens to be Jewish, from Brooklyn, a woman, a writer, a feminist. So I've taken what he's taught me and put it through my filter, but hopefully the essence is still the same. It's still wake up, shut up, do what's in front of you, get here. At the same time, have kind consideration for all sentient beings, every moment, forever. 
So it sounds like the idea of standing in that role as a Zen writing teacher is something that's just sort of beginning to dawn on you as something you're comfortable standing in fully. Yes, I think that's true. I think that's true. I think I always held it, but I, you know, and definitely taught out of it, but I'm willing to, you know, become transparent with it, I think. And then knowing what you know about your relationship as a student to a spiritual teacher, what do you expect from your students? What do you want from them? Or, or what is the the bond? What's their responsibility? What's your responsibility? How do you see that? My hope for them is that they keep practicing, that the seed has been planted deep enough that they keep practicing. I don't see them all the time like Katagiri and I, but I have students who come, you know, sometimes several times a year or once a year over many years, but they keep coming. And when they're not with me, that the seed has been planted deep enough and creative enough that they can find a way through to keep practicing and to keep it alive. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And I know in your book, The Great Failure, part of what you were working with had to do with the teacher-student relationship and also a sense of disappointment that you went through in relationship to just more information coming to the surface about Katagiri Roshi's life, things that you didn't know about when he was alive as your teacher. And I'm curious where you are in your process with disappointment in Katagiri specifically and just in spiritual teachers. Well, I think I'm much more realistic. I'm not as idealistic. And writing that book, The Great Failure, which I think actually I wrote, I read it. You have the audio book of yes. it. Uh, writing that book and then having it come out and a lot of people being very angry at me, I pretty much lost the whole Minnesota Sangha from it. You know, they've disappeared. I think that's when I really grew up. I became my own authority. You know, I've been very successful, and people loved my books. So I thought they would love this one, too, when I continued to tell the truth. And I realized the earlier ones, they liked the truth I was telling. And uh, with this one, I grew up, and I became my own authority. I still love and honor Katagiri, and I'm, I've gone on. He's been dead 20 years. That's interesting in terms of you stepping into more of your own authority. Can you tell me more about that? Uh, well, there's nobody there but me. And the truth is, for instance, I kept saying, oh, you know, in writing down the bones, I kept referring to Katagiri and kind of hiding behind him because it was too scary at the time to stand up behind what I thought and felt. But I really, truly put it in the book. And now I'm standing up with it. Yeah, it was me who wrote that book. And it was me who had those understandings. Not that it wasn't enriched by my practice of those years in Minnesota with Katagiri, but I knew those things. 
It's Natalie who knew them. Mm-hmm. You know, as a woman, as um, in our society, I was brought up in the 50s and 60s. We were not meant to have our own authority and to believe in our own mind. So it's been a long journey. I haven't quit. I kept going, and I've grown into it slowly. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And just one final question, Natalie. Uh, our program is called Insights at the Edge, and I'm always curious to hear the quote-unquote edge, what people are, are working on in their own life that they experience as their kind of growing challenge, or at least one of them, a growing challenge, something that you feel comfortable sharing with us. My growing edge now is something having to do with the Nazis, Um, the terror that came up for me and the horror. You know, I understand, I read a lot of African literature and I'm very aware of the horror, especially with the civil rights, the South, and I've always cared about human rights. But I'm a Jew, and when I went to Auschwitz, it was no longer caring about someone else. It was me on the line. How can I hold my humanity and my heart and face the Nazis? Now, I know it sounds like they're still around, but... For me, they, you know, it's something I have to keep dealing with. How can I face that kind of horror and stay connected to my own humanity and my own heart and not, um, not freak out? Mm-hmm. You know, and in the face of it, they might kill me, but not lose who I am. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like that inquiry is taking you deeper into your own vulnerable heart exposed in the midst of that kind of horror. Oh boy, Tammy, you're not kidding. You're not kidding. Well, thank you, Natalie. It's been, as always, uh, wonderful to talk with you. Natalie Goldberg, she has created with Sounds True a whole series of audio programs. Her classic book, Writing Down the Bones, is available as an audio title as well as Old Friend from Far Away on How to Write Memoir. As well, we've recorded several of Natalie's books on tape. She's read the books in their entirety, Long Quiet Highway, The Great Failure, Thunder and Lightning. And uh, we've also produced a program, Natalie Goldberg and Julia Cameron, in conversation about the writing life. Natalie, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure again. I didn't realize how much I missed you. I know. We have to stay closer. Yes, it was wonderful. Thank you, Tammy. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey.